Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We've got two more hours this week to take you against the grain on a whole lot of stories. Yeah, and there's a lot for a Friday. You know, yeah. usually we come in and we say, ah, it's Friday. It's kind of a slow day. Not today. Nope. I, you will never catch me saying it's a slow oh, day because do. that is a curse. And now <laughs> Johnny brought something terrible down on our heads. We have to start, though, with the, the story that is breaking and that is really yeah. uh, incredibly exciting and incredibly important. It looks like the Staten Island warehouse that w- was organized by Chris Smalls, it looks like they have won their union vote. Yep. And so this will be the Amazon. first unionized Amazon warehouse in the country. That's right. It is also a brand new union, the Amazon Labor Union, which would seem to also perhaps have played a role here because we simultaneously we had a revote at the facility in Bessemer, Alabama. Uh, the union has not won there, uh, but there are, I think, something like 400. There are several, several hundred ballots that are being challenged. So that means that vote the official results uh, for that vote will take a little while to come in. But it seems like uh, they they had the Amazon Labor Union has they were ahead the entire for the entire count. Amazing. It seemed like and it seems like they have pulled this off, which truly is incredible, especially considering, you know, this man, Christian Smalls, who was a worker at that warehouse, who tried to organize, who did organize a walkout over working conditions during COVID, who was fired who was then smeared by mm-hmm. Amazon mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, deliberately, they deliberately tried to make him the face of the labor union because they underestimated him. They and, did. And, and uh, you know, let's talk about that for one second, please. too. It's one thing to have the might of the AFL-CIO behind you mm-hmm. or the United Food and Commercial Workers or the Teamsters Union. This is different. Yeah. They created their own union led by Chris Smalls, who was severely underestimated in terms of his abilities and his commitment to getting these workers organized. Yeah. And the good guys won. Yeah. And also, when you talk about what they were up against, uh, there are two reports uh, today, either out late last night or today, one from CNBC and one, I think, in Reuters. One is that Amazon, it's revealed, according to filings with the Department of Labor, that Amazon paid anti-union consultants $4.3 million to beat back organizing efforts, and also that it was working with a polling firm with close ties to the Democrats. The Democrats. Oh, yeah. Who are all, they're always getting caught. There's former Obama officials. Hypocrites. They're always getting they're caught going to, to uh, the involve themselves in union busting. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, this global strategy group, which had also been a, a polling partner for a Biden super PAC, uh, had been working for Amazon since late last year, producing anti-union materials. But that oh, does outrageous. not seem to have been enough to stop this uh, this shift. And so the, the impact of this, I think, could be could be really significant. That's pretty exciting. That's very exciting. You know, time used to be here in the United States when most workers were members of unions. That's how we got the 40-hour work week and paid vacation mm-hmm. and health care and, you know, holidays off. And, and we don't have children working in the mines anymore, right? Both my grandfathers were members of the United Steelworkers from the 1920s until they retired in the in the 60s and 70s. My dad was a member of the American Federation of Teachers and the American Brotherhood of Musicians. My mom was in the American Federation of Teachers. 
I was a member of the United Food and Commercial Workers and then went to work at the international headquarters when I was in graduate school. I, I don't know how we could get along as a country without unions. And I know that they've fallen out of favor a little bit because um, because people have convinced themselves that it was the unions that priced American labor out of the market, which wasn't true, but it sort of stuck. And now maybe the, the trend is in that opposite direction again. I think this is a huge story. It would be great if it was. I think um, there's more to go up against at this point. I think this sort of... Uh, Corporatization of government, the corporate capture of government is mm-hmm. probably more uh, extensive than it was then. And yes. so you are going up against, you know, you, you're having to go That's up against point. the party that used to be your political backer. That's a good point. You know, yep. and so, yeah, but this is this is great news. And I don't want to. Um, yeah, I don't want to I don't want to rain on it in <laughs> any way. It is really exciting. Uh, we have other stuff going on. Of course, we have an EU-China summit that we are going to talk about a little bit later in the hour. Uh, it's described by at least one expert as a, a warning summit for China. That so we'll talk about how China is going to take being warned by yet another entity on, on how to conduct its foreign policy and economic policy. You know, what's funny to me is you've got the White House, the Biden administration, you have the EU, and they figuratively grab the Chinese by the shirts and they say, why I oughta, you know, like that's supposed to somehow motivate the Chinese to come onto our side on some of these issues. It's yeah. hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, we also have the crappy media men list coming yeah. back into view. I've sanitized its title, but that's yes. an interesting, um, that's an interesting case. And a sort of flashback to the, the beginning of the, the Me Too movement. We're going to talk about a new report on the U.S. bombardment of Raqqa and how it is that some armies make long, long chains of unfortunate errors that, much to everyone's dismay, result in the deaths of thousands of civilians and other armies commit war crimes. It's, it's weird. How uh, and I think I can explain that. I think I can explain why the U.S. had so many problems in Raqqa. Mm-hmm. Um, it's because they don't have any war fighting experience. You know, um, when, when you're a peacekeeping army like ours is, where we don't engage in combat. Oh, right. OK. Yeah. 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 You know, yeah. then you don't really know how to take over. A- Honestly, I don't want to pre- <laughs> I don't want to preempt this uh, this conversation that we're going to have. But, uh, you know, the, this Rand report, the way it's presented is really funny. Um, but it says, you know, the, the purpose of the, of the report is to discuss how the U.S. military could cause significant civilian harm despite a deeply ingrained commitment to the law of war. Yeah, I, just, right. I think you might have a faulty premise there. Yeah. I, I, I read the executive summary at the Rand uh, website and it was very gentle. Yeah. In in its hinted accusation of war crimes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's like a, the LaCroix, which I guess you're yes. supposed to say LaCroix, but I can't help it. I like saying it the <laughs> other way. It's a hint, a whiff of war crime. That's a, right. A, a whiff of an essence of. There's also, of course, uh, pretty, pretty significant news coming out of Ukraine. Russia says a helicopter airstrike by Ukraine is responsible for a fire at a fuel depot inside Russia. Yes. Um, the country says two, two people were injured in, in the process, either in the evacuation or in the strike. They say no one was killed. Right. Uh, as Huge of this amount morning, of damage, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's fuel Huge. burning. Yeah. You know, they had to come out and make a statement about how fuel supplies are secure and don't worry about it. Uh, I have not seen Ukraine claiming responsibility for the strike. No, they haven't yet. Um, but, you know, it, it would be an it would be a change to see the war actually brought to Russian soil. Uh, the Russian response has so far been basically we're containing the fire. 
and we don't find this helpful to the peace process. Uh, kind of, uh, I don't know. I don't know if downplaying is the right word, but, you know, it, it, Russia cannot now pick up the mantle of victimhood. So right. I think it is probably in their interest to just say, yeah, OK, this is not a big deal. We're continuing as usual. I mean, I guess you also can't express su- surprise. No, when uh, especially when the Russians blew up a, a Ukrainian fuel depot two weeks ago. Right. Right. Uh, and in terms of those peace talks, uh, Ukraine is still trying to find a way to get NATO style security guarantees without yes. actually joining NATO. Uh, but uh, no one else really seems to want to go along with that. No. And we said on the show yesterday and a couple of days ago that this we thought this was going to be the sticking point, because if you're looking if you you're looking toward NATO countries to provide you some sort of security guarantees, that is de facto uh, NATO membership. Yeah. It is hard to see how it would work. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you have officials in Germany, in France, in the U.S. and in the U.K. saying basically that we do not. That's right. We're not going to do this. We we don't see how this could work. It's it's unlikely no. to happen. Variations on that theme. And, and you look at it from those countries perspectives, too. Sure, we all want peace in, in Ukraine. But do you want to be dragged into a war with Russia at some point in the future if, you know, a Russian troop crosses the border and no, you're I mean, compelled and that is exactly, to guarantee security. Yeah, it's it's just it's hard to it's hard to do NATO without NATO because exactly. you still have the same problems, right? Yes. The same problems that NATO presents are not Precisely. are not uh, non-existent with a different name. In the meantime, you have the Ukrainian president uh, stripping two generals of their rank for what he said was their failure to live up to their oath of allegiance mm. uh, and uh, calling them traitors. Yeah. You know, saying I don't have time to deal with all the traitors. Uh, the the two generals are both security officials, also uh, notably. So you know, Ukraine continues to uh, attempt to purge itself. It seems like I also just don't want to let Sean Penn's dumb tweet completely slide by. Did you? Yeah, did you? I, read you it? should say something. Sean Penn uh, uh, exhorting one billionaire, or you know, could be multiple billionaires, but he's saying one billionaire could end this war uh, and and discussing the price of two squadrons of F-15s or F-16s, saying, oh, it's 300 million, 200 no. million in missile defense, total of 500 million. A private a private entity could just come in here and supply Ukraine with the the types of military hardware that other countries haven't because of this fear of of triggering an escalation in this war. I don't That's think. That's not how it works. No. You can't just go into the store and say, I'll take a squadron of F-18s. No. Right. I've tried. You you just can't do it. At the CVS, (laughs) they get very confused. No. And also, yeah, just everything. Nothing about this makes sense. But that is, you know, Sean Penn for you. I like Sean Penn, but he needs to shut up. (laughs) (laughs) He does. You know, he said for his pretty face. He said last week that he was going to smelt his his Academy Awards if the Academy didn't invite Zelensky to address. Yeah. The uh, the. The show on yeah. Sunday night. Yeah, I mean, it is. They ignored he, him. he is a performer and that would seem to be uh, performative. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. We also have today uh, the end of, well, the end of a, a very interesting trial. It's only a four. It's a four of the 14 men who were arrested in connection with an alleged plot to kidnap Michigan Governor, Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Yes. Uh, back in, I think, 2020. I think that's and right. This is the defense is going to present their closing arguments today. But of course, this is a trial where, um, you know, a lot of these defendants are saying that they were entrapped 
Uh, you had even New York Times today talking about the trial, saying that uh, the men were arrested before there was anything even like an attempt to put the plot into motion and acknowledging that uh, an informer was the one to organize some of the trainings that the men took part in. And so they're trying to decide, at least in, in one facet of, facet of the trial, um, you know, at, at what point does speech cross into conspiracy? You know, if you, you know, this is the problem. They they likely were entrapped by the uh, by the FBI, mm -hmm. but federal courts have ruled repeatedly that that is not a defense. Yeah, you either conspired or you didn't conspire, and it doesn't matter if the Someone FBI encouraged conspire. the conspiracy. Yeah, yeah, which doesn't seem it's not fair. Right? Yeah, it yeah, it's seem not right. fair. The other but strange it happens. The other strange thing uh, that was reported two days ago is that FBI agents raided a house outside Detroit uh, last week in connection to threats made against the judge, two defense attorneys, and at least one potential witness in the trial. Wow. Which is weird. Yeah. And so, again, it's not, it doesn't seem like it is these guys threatening people. It seems like someone threatening these guys. And remember, there was one of the agents involved was trying to set up his own private security. Oh. And to, I'm not suggesting he did it. Just there's a lot of, lot of shady characters involved in this trial. We've talked about it on the show before. There was the guy who was arrested for beating his wife up. There was the guy who was found to be probably trying to drum up business for his, his private entity while he was working as an agent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just a, mm -hmm. a lot and of And this shade. kind of thing happens more often than you might think. You know, the, the FBI, they're not so pristine as they want everybody to think they are. No, <laughs> clearly not. NPR had an interesting report out this morning on how a federal program that is intended to help low-income student loan borrowers uh, and, and move them toward eventual cancellation of their debts uh, is just a complete mess. Like, they lost track of, of people's payments. Uh, servers weren't tracking them. They didn't know which borrowers qualified for cancellation or not. Just, like, oh. just completely non-functional. And these are for people who, you know, an example might be uh, the guy who was in court, I believe, in Delaware, uh, who had he had something like tens of thousands worth of student debt. He had become very seriously disabled. There was no way he was going to be able to earn enough money in his lifetime to pay off that debt. And he had to go to court to, to fight to get it relieved. So presumably these might be some of the students who this program is supposed to be sort of uh, ushering along through a process to get them debt relief. And instead, it just seems to be a complete shambles. Mm hmm. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Also, <laughs> Pakistan, Imran Khan. Uh, I mean, I, we don't have anything much to say, but I just think it's Imran Khan saying that uh, the U.S. is trying to oust him. It's not it's not his own domestic failures to right. build robust coalitions, but it's the United States. And, you know, on the one hand, when you say, hey, the US, U.S. is interfering against me, I think, OK, well, I'll listen. I'll listen. I'm not sure. going to dismiss that possibility out of hand. Um, but not a lot of people in Pakistan seem to be buying it. No. And to tell you the truth, the State Department loves Imran Khan. They love him mm. because he's moderate, he's independently wealthy and successful, he's proven to be a supporter of democratic principles, and he's a nice guy. You know, he's a nice guy. I might not love him so much after this. Yeah, maybe not. It's pointing the finger. We're going to take a first break here and come back and talk a little bit more about uh, these and many other topics. You will hear it all here on Political Misfits. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back.
Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here in the studio with my friend Michelle Witte. It's no secret that former senior intelligence officials frequently find a new home in the U.S. media. Former CIA Director John Brennan is now a senior national security and intelligence analyst for NBC and MSNBC. Former CIA and NSA Director Michael Hayden and former Director of National Intelligence James Clapper ended up as commentators at CNN. Former FBI Director James Comey went to MSNBC and former NSA Director Keith Alexander is now at Amazon. And there are dozens of other former CIA and FBI officials that have ended up at the big three cable news networks. Why is this important? Well, it's important because this is where most Americans get their news, including news about Ukraine. And have you ever heard of Maxar Technologies? They're a company that provides cutting-edge satellite photography that's used on all of the news networks. You know, when they start you in space and then it goes closer and closer to Earth and then you see a city and then it takes you right to the building that's been, you know, bombed or whatever, that's Maxar Technologies. Well. On their website, they list four of their eight largest consumers as U.S. government, U.S. intelligence, international governments, and international intelligence organizations. And finally, the RAND Corporation has completed a review on behalf of the Pentagon that Michelle mentioned a minute ago. It's on U.S. military activity in Raqqa, Syria. Its conclusions are that the Pentagon made a myriad of mistakes that caused untold harm to the civilian population of Raqqa, harm that could legal, legally be construed as a war crime. We're going to talk about this and more with Aaron Good, political scientist and host of the American Exception podcast on Patreon. His doctoral dissertation is going to be published by Skyhorse in June under the title American Exception, Empire and the Deep State. Welcome back, Aaron. Hey, thanks, John. It's good to be here. Aaron, real quickly, I have to ask you about your book. I see that it's been delayed to June. Mine have been delayed to May because um, Skyhorse can't get any paper. There's a oh yeah, we talked about the paper yeah. There's yeah. a supply chain disruption, and the paper that they buy comes from China, and they just can't get paper to print our books. What's up with that? <laughs> well, you know the uh, uh, things like that might keep happening as the U.S. Uh, seems to be turning a large chunk of the world's huge landmass of Eurasia against it. Pretty much everything <laughs> east of NATO now Seriously. is not liking the U.S., and so these things are going to happen more and more. Seriously, I, I've got kind of a long first question for you. Let's begin with these intelligence officials in the media. Besides those that I mentioned, we also have people like Chuck Rosenberg. He's the former acting administrator of DEA uh, and chief of staff for Jim Comey and counselor to Robert Mueller. We have Frank Figliuzzi, former chief of FBI counterintelligence, Juan Zarati, George W. Bush's deputy national security advisor. Uh, they're all at NBC. Fran Townsend, uh, she was Homeland Security Advisor under Bush. She's at CBS. CNN has FBI agent Asha Rangappa, FBI agent Jim Gagliano. Tony Blinken was at CNN before he became Secretary of State. Everybody's already forgotten that. Former House Intelligence Committee Chairman Mike Rogers um, and uh, Samantha Vinograd from the uh, National Security Council during the Obama administration. She's at CNN. CIA operations officers Stephen Hall, Philip Mudd, they're at CNN. Tell us the effect that this has on reporting and on public opinion. It has to have an effect. You know, it seems to me like these all these senior CIA people or FBI or NSA or whatever, 
they're telling the president, well, Mr. President, here's the classified information that we've collected from you. And then they're going to go on TV. Now that they're talking heads, they're going to say exactly the same thing. And now magically it's not classified. It seems to me that this is just a way for the intelligence community to to sort of set the tone uh, on the way that uh, that news coverage takes place. Yes, and it would seem to be transparently so. And uh, from my perspective, I'm not sure why they want to do this. I thought that they benefited by uh, having by apparently having their hands off of things like newscasts and so on, because it's not like they didn't manipulate the media a lot before. There are plenty of journalists in my mind. And of course, these things never get proven because they don't come out and say, oh, yes, I'm a I'm a plant or I have a long relationship with the CIA. But I have always looked at the reporting of guys like David Korn or Tim Weiner or Michael Isakoff and thought, okay, I know the CIA has a history of working with the media in different ways. This goes back to the, the, the early parts of the Cold War. And uh, so they, they have likely not stopped. Who are the people that are the most likely culprits? And then, well, who are the guys that get trotted out to write about controversial issues related to intelligence and national security and uh, invariably have a pro-CIA line or kind of a limited hangout if there's somebody like Tim Weiner who, who writes uh, you know, histories of the CIA and the FBI. If you're going to have a history of the CIA or the FBI written, and of course there's all these crimes that have been committed by these agencies that are in the public record, you're going to have somebody who will acknowledge what's in the record, but really minimize the uh, sort of uh, malevolence behind all of these crimes. And on controversial debatable issues, you'll have someone who will back the intelligence agencies. So like Tim Weiner, for example, wrote that history of the CIA. And then just recently, he wrote a really terrible piece attacking Oliver Stone's JFK documentaries uh, for Rolling Stone. And so that's the beauty of this other relationship that they used to have with intelligence, with the media, that apparently they could control the discourse without it being so obvious. Now, it just seems like it's kind of, it's so clearly propagandistic that it may be undermining the effectiveness of the propaganda when you see a, a former CIA director actually talking about U.S. policy uh, on, uh, it's on TV. It's, they used to be, people used to have more skepticism. I guess Trump sort of made liberals love the CIA and FBI and national security states. So right. uh, that's quite a feat. Right. It's quite a feat. You know, in the 1970s, uh, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein became superstars. Uh, with their investigation of the Watergate break. And they they took down a sitting president of the United States and they inspired thousands of young people to go into journalism. And then they started writing these vanilla um, accounts of daily life at the CIA and, and NSA and Bush at war and the Supreme Court. And it became kind of meh, you know. Well, now we've got people like Ken Delanian from NBC and MSNBC, the, the lead uh, uh, intelligence correspondent, who we know, thanks to a Freedom of Information Act request, had been sending his articles to the CIA for comment and clearance before he was sending them to his own editor. So it seems to me like we had this incredible opportunity in the 70s and even in the 80s through the Reagan presidency to really have a group of, 
of serious investigative journalists who were willing to challenge government and to challenge the status quo and really get to the truth. And that just went away. Now, newspapers, even the so-called newspapers of record, don't have the budgets for investigative journalism that they used to. And we rely on things like ProPublica, for example, for, for real investigative journalism. Is there a way out of that? I think that the independent media is a mixed bag and some of it functions similar to the way it would have back in the day when, uh, you know, the CIA was infiltrating corporate newsrooms. I mean, I, I can't get over how bad Democracy Now!'s coverage has oh become God. in recent I years totally on things agree. like and, – and they represent, according to people that watch Fox News or something, they represent the radical anti-American left. And yet from my perspective, if they aren't influenced directly by like intelligence people, then likely some sort of relationship between the, the foundations and their funders – allow them to exert some kind of influence, because otherwise I have a hard time explaining how their editorial line has changed. But I would also say, and this I detail this in, in American Exception extensively, that what happened in the 70s with Watergate was a result of a, a, an establishment civil war. And so somebody like Woodward, who is held up as a paragon of, of like scrappy journalism for breaking Watergate. Well, his case is very strange because he was an intelligence officer before he parachuted into the Washington Post and broke the story of the century using a lot of inside government sources, you know, including high ranking yes, FBI people and such. Yes. And he also was not just somebody who had been in naval intelligence, but he was working under a very right-wing um, superior, I believe Wellander was his name, and, uh, and um, some of these names kind of escaped me, but there were, there were a number of generals and admirals who were anti-Nixon, anti-detente. Mm -hmm. They were even spying on Nixon and got caught trying to like steal Henry Kissinger's documents and things like this. <laughs> and, Kiss and Nixon covered this up because he didn't want it to be a scandal. But a lot of the leaks that come out have to do with conflicts over policy that lead to Watergate. And uh, so there's really a, the, the, the media for a time in seeming to go after the national security state with all of these leaks and exposés of, of state crimes were acting in a way on behalf of some part of the establishment that was kind of anti-Nixon and anti-detente and so on. Um, and so it's a it's a more complicated story, but it really did open kind of a Pandora's box of uh, secrets coming out because Nixon to try to to try to go against his enemies, he would leak other things. That's why the family jewels file got created. Right. Uh, they had the he fired uh, Dick Helms and put in Schlesinger to dig up all the secrets. And that became of the CIA so that because he thought the CIA was really screwing him with Watergate because of E. Howard Hunt's CIA connections and so on. That's right. So there's a, a really wild backstory there behind Nixon. Uh, in, in many ways, it looks like a lot of the same forces that got rid of John Kennedy got rid of Nixon. But to talk about Woodward and the 80s for just a second, when Iran-Contra was going down, Catherine Graham, who ran the Washington Post, um, <clears throat> she didn't want to cover Iran-Contra the same way. Robert Perry, when he was at Newsweek, and wanted, he broke a lot of these stories yes, on Iran-Contra. But elsewhere, he was told he was told explicitly, we don't want another Watergate. So th they really that was kind of an aberration. And it led to the church committee 
and the House Select Committee on Assassinations in the 70s. But ultimately, <clears throat> it paved the way for Reagan and the rise of corporate media dominance and really corporate dominance over everything that used to be sort of liberal New Deal, uh, you know, post-war America became increasingly right-wing and corporate dominated. And uh, the Watergate story is a, is a part of that. And it led to Reagan. And uh, that's where we are today. It's corporate dominance all the time in this kind of merger, even between the intelligence community and the um, regular media people. So it's really something. And just as an aside, first of all, that fascinating story is absolutely true, what you just said. Absolutely true. You've documented it. I wanted to add one one little tidbit about uh, Bob Woodward and Mark Felt, the the uh, source who became Deep Throat. Uh, they met, according to Felt, at the dentist's office one day. They just happened to be chatting. Hi, how are you? What do you do for a living? I work for the Washington Post. What do you do for a living? I'm the deputy director of the FBI. But they bonded over the fact that they had both served in Navy intelligence. And that was the only reason that they struck up that conversation is they found that they had that in common and uh, and felt gave Woodward his business card. One thing led to the other. He became deep throat. Watergate happened. The president uh, was brought down, but they bonded over their shared experience in intelligence. Yeah. And felt himself was not a person who was a good cop who, you know, or no, a good no, FBI no, no. man. He was, he did no. black bag operations like Pro. He was like one of the worst criminals. Oh, he was all in. Yes, you're exactly right. And even, even Nixon himself, when people say that Nixon, when in that Frost interview, he said, when the president does it, it's not illegal. Well, that's horrible. And that's not the America that I know. But if you look back at the history of post-war United States, uh, the, the, the government creates all commits all sorts of crimes on the regular. So really, Nixon wasn't that far uh, off in terms of what standard operating procedure was. I want to ask you one more question about all these uh, intelligence people going into uh, the media. Glenn Greenwald tweeted this week, um, quote, the most overlooked media story of the last six years is the gigantic influx of security state operatives onto the payroll of corporate liberal newsrooms. CNN and NBC filed, um, um, I think he means filled, with operatives of CIA, NSA, DOJ, Pentagon, and FBI. They used to have to do this covertly, not now. And then Matt Taibbi said this morning, most amazing is the reaction of career journalists to intelligence operatives, trained liars invading the news business. They mostly cheer it even though honest reporters are usually first in line to be displaced by these spook pundits, unquote. You know, I hadn't thought of that, actually, but that's true. And now that he's said it, it just seems completely clear. But every network is guilty of doing it. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, it, it doesn't get much clearer than Mike Pompeo as Secretary of State reflecting on his time at the CIA and chuckling and saying, Oh yeah, we uh, we lied, we cheat, we stole, and so he's. You've got it's bad enough that he's a diplomat. For some reason, you make this guy who admits to being a uh, liar who right. breaks the law all the time as your secretary of state. Which you know, how much can people trust American diplomacy anyway? I mean, look what happened to Gaddafi after he got promised that if he got rid of his weapons, that he could be brought back into the fold, and then he gets executed by our proxies. So we are, I mean, there's enough to know that already. We don't need 
uh, Mike Pompeo chuckling about how he lies for us to know that, like, of course, the intelligence community lies all the time. But it is uh, it's astounding that they have the chutzpah to put these guys in this in these positions. And um, I think that it's I appreciate that Greenwald is out there talking ab ab about this and drawing attention to it just so people can um, uh, th think about it themselves. I tend to think that at this stage in the U.S. empire, the propaganda machine can very well um, mesmerize the, the U.S. population, but that historical events are changing such that this is, is going, something's got to give. And it's not going to likely come from domestic politics because they have too successfully bewildered us and, and atomized us and fragmented us in different ways. But uh it, it's going to be something for historians to study in years years oh, to come. Yes. What what happened to these liberal institutions that are supposed to safeguard democracy? Um, assuming that's assuming that the U.S. does not somehow get the world blown up uh, hmm. before that that sort of post mortem for the American Empire can happen. At the CIA, we all had these coffee cups that they gave us. I I got mine like the, the the week that I arrived there. They gave us these coffee mugs and they had the CIA emblem on them. And they said, admit nothing, deny everything, make counter accusations. And that's really I mean, it was kind of a half joke, but half serious. And that really is the culture at the CIA. Um, Aaron, I mentioned in the introduction that Maxar Technologies uh, of Herndon, Virginia, provides all that cool satellite imagery to the media where the clip starts in space and then it quickly gets closer to Earth until it lands on the image that the story's about. Well, their biggest customers are not the news networks so much as they are the CIA, NSA, the Pentagon, and other intelligence agencies, and apparently foreign intelligence services. Is this crossover dangerous? Should we be worried about it when when we see all of the news networks using the same technology? It's it's dangerous, and it's also a continuation of a, of a trend, I think, that there's just so much bleed over in between the intelligence agencies, the creation of private defense contractors, and then even the creation of private intelligence outfits that end up getting security, high-level security clearances, uh, even though they are not their corporate entities, yeah. right? It's yeah. there's there are layers and layers and firewalls of precluding any sort of count accountability or transparency or oversight. Now, just in general, and uh, basically, you can assume maximum secrecy and uh, you know imperviousness to legal restraint uh, on the part of these deep state entities pretty generally. And for things like that, I mean, there's a number of issues with intelligence reporting of different things that could be manipulated. And the U.S. has a history of that. In the, in the original Gulf War, they uh, it came out and was exposed, but it, of course, doesn't matter because nothing really matters for the empire, uh, that the U.S. had manipulated satellite imagery to suggests that Iraq was on the verge of uh, invading Saudi Arabia, for example. So I can see opportunities for that sort of mischief with this kind of relationship, but it's the sort of mischief we've already seen even without it. So it just seems to be making it easier, uh, maybe maybe streamlining the process for uh, their, them to uh, propagandize us and, and disinform us. Let's talk for a minute about the Rand Corporation and this report about Raqqa. The report, if, if you read between the lines, the report's pretty harsh. Uh, even though they use nice language, 
Um, it's said that the U.S. encirclement of Raqqa caused civilian harm, that extensive structural damage in Raqqa undermined post-battle governing prospects and long-term U.S. interests. And it said that air power was not used to shape the battlefield in Raqqa, which made civilian harm mitigation more difficult. And flawed DOD processes and poor collection of civilian casualty data hindered the military's ability to assess and then to analyze civilian harm. It's as if this was the first time the U.S. ever fought a battle. Why can our military not get the most basic elements of war fighting right? And then after all these generations of fighting, they have to hire the likes of the RAND Corporation to tell them how to do it. Right. I, I, RAND is a very interesting organization, and I'm not sure what to make of this report. Uh, I mean, I can believe that the U.S. was reckless and foolish in the way that it prosecuted uh, a particular aspect of this conflict. But even looking back further, I believe it was also a RAND study. I mean, it's it, it's hard to remember whether all these come from Rand or DOD or really right. if there's much of a difference there anyway. <laughs> but Rand had written how using sectarian divisions might be a way for the U.S. to uh, get the upper hand again after the chaos of the Iraq war and the withdrawal and all that. And, you know, lo and behold, a few years later, you have ISIS emerging and then these Al-Qaeda people uh, you know, a couple of years before that, even uh, taking the lead in this insurgency in uh, in Syria, which was supposed to be the pretext was the Arab Spring or whatever. But these ended up being not at all moderate rebels or, you know, enlightened, friendly liberals. They The CIA armed this massive force, largely uh, consisting of jihadis. And that was who we used to try to unseat the Syrian government. And ISIS emerges from that later, strangely, uh, as this new kind of pretext for the U.S. to get in there, kind of in line with what Rand was suggesting. So a lot of people wonder really what is the who is funding ISIS and so on. Is it the Saudis or the other Gulf states and, and what are they really doing? But at any rate, this whole this situation in Syria grew out of the dirty war that the U.S. was using to try to get rid of um, the Syrian government. And so that adds another layer of just absurdity to the study of this conflict where Rand, who had called for, you know, harnessing the power of these uh, sectarian jihadi elements to try to get rid of the Syrian government. And then it eventually gets to the point that the U.S. intervenes supposedly against these Islamist elements, but the Syrian government doesn't even want them there intervening in this in the first place. Right. They say, okay, these head chopping fanatics are dangerous, but we'd rather handle them ourselves. The right. U.S. is like, nope, we're here fighting the, the evildoers. <laughs> and then they destroy this whole city. And then Rand writes a report on it. it it's just, uh, it, it's like a farcical postscript to an already uh, ridiculous and, and horrible, bloody crime scene, which is really what Syria is with this dirty war. So, um, I the arrogance of the the U.S. in thinking that its military power uh, can just be used in this way, if they were overzealous and kind of foolish in the way that they pursued this aspect of the conflict, that's sort of keeping in character with everything that they had been doing, uh, really in the 21st century. So starting with 9/11, you have 9/11 wars, and then those sort of have problems. Then you have the Arab Spring wars. And those seem to have not gone the way the U.S. wanted. And now we've got this conflict in uh, in Ukraine. But a lot of it seems to be when you look at it from a detached perspective, it all seems to be part of the U.S. post-Cold War policy 
to try to take over the Middle East and Central Asia and those areas that had been controlled by the Soviet Union and make sure that the U.S. can maintain uh, the situation that existed after World War II in perpetuity. And I think that the Raqqa thing is a, is a sad chapter in how the U.S. Oh, has yeah. failed to do this. Totally agree. Aaron, I wanted to ask you about developments in a lawsuit that were reported in Politico today. Forgive me for, for being a little bit long-winded, but here's what it says. A libel lawsuit over a widely circulated Google spreadsheet listing men in the news media who had allegedly committed sexual assault, abuse, or similar improprieties moved closer to trial Thursday, yesterday, after a judge rejected a bid by the document's creator to resolve the case in her favor. Prepared at the height of the Me Too movement in 2017, the crappy media men list, that's what it's called, well, it's not crappy, but you get it, is uh, is causing a major stir with some defending the right of women to warn other women about dangerous men in their midst and critics complaining that the roster sullied men's reputations without due process. So what ended up happening was this list made uh, the rounds. It was a spreadsheet. And uh, people would add names and add information. And there was one journalist from New Orleans, a writer by the name of Stephen Elliott, who then sued the the keeper of the list for defamation over text on the spreadsheet that accused him of rape, sexual harassment and coercion. Uh, The the woman who prepared the spreadsheet said that she didn't add the name. um, But the judge yesterday said. He didn't care. This may have gone too far. The defense that she was using was that Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act says you can't sue a social media platform. And she's maintaining that her list is the same as or should have the same protections as a social media platform. The judge said that was nonsense. Um, Where does this go? This seems like it could be the beginning of a backlash against Me Too. Or is it just specific to this one case? Because, you know, we during the We Too, uh, Me Too movement, we had the likes of Harvey Weinstein and uh, uh, Bill Cosby and all kinds of monsters who really did these things. So what happens next here? Yeah, the legal minutiae, I really have no idea about, but I do see this as symptomatic of the problems caused by the Internet age and social media And because men have traditionally gotten away with behaving badly in power, you have these habits of this particular, you know, aspect, uh, social class of of people who are in positions of of power and in the media. Um, The media likely attracts kind of narcissistic personalities, especially, you know, big broadcast media and things like that. And so you are that probably makes them apt to do some of the the more worse things on the regular. Uh, And so I'm not surprised by this kind of the, what happened with the me too thing. And, but I also see it as putting forward out opportunities for lots of mischief like this. I mean, I generally think that for sexual assault allegations that you can believe the victims However, the caveat to that is when these are famous and powerful people, then there actually is significant incentive to uh, potentially makes plausibly make something up. So how do we how do we even discern these things? You have to have some kind of due process. But, you know, does but the by doing that, you kind of give an advantage to people who might be uh, people are habitual offenders 
So it's a it's a mess, and I don't know what I don't know how they can regulate these sort of things. I'm not a fan of Google Docs for personal reasons. They were used to sort of uh, make me have to do too many annoying administrative tasks <laughs> when I worked for when I worked for Obama. So I wanted to rebel against that. <laughs> so it's funny when you say Google Doc, it always it kind of brings a Pavlovian response in me. Um, I mean, so I it is punish whoever made the Google Doc. But yeah, this is this is wild. It is a mess. And I think it's, you know, again, it speaks to there are not enough for, sort of formal pathways to address this kind of stuff. Women are still, I think, really in, intimidated by, you know, in, engaging in this sort of legal process to uh, resolve some of these problems, even even up to and including, you know, se- sexual assault and rape. And so we've just sort of relied on more uh, overt social shunning. But this is sort of showing the limitations of that, right? I mean, I think, of course, women should be allowed to warn each other about men that they don't like or men who they think might, you know, uh, impact their careers, right? Because I don't, this is not a spreadsheet shared by a bunch of executives at uh, at companies, you know, it's mostly women talking about how to, you know, how to get around a bad boss, right? Somebody who's not necessarily doing anything wrong, but who, you know, you could rub the wrong way, whatever. Um, but it rely, you know, women are sort of sharing these, using these informal mechanisms to warn themselves about people who could be either dangerous or just annoying. And so, you know, there should be other mechanisms, right, for people. There's a, there's a big difference between uh, someone who's sort of misogynistic in the office and they can't do anything about it and someone who actually commits sexual assault, right? And we shouldn't be left having to deal with both of those situations in the same way. And yeah. I think it sort of speaks to the limitations of, you know, we just got worked up about the ability of, of uh, social condemnation to solve these problems. But there is a limit to how much you can socially condemn someone. You can't commit de- defamation. And so it's it's ironic that like, the, you know, that it is and this woman who's ending up being uh, possibly punished for you know running up against this sort of failure of our larger legal system, I think. I got to chewed up the rest of the, <laughs> the rest of the time there, but you know, to okay. let the lady but, uh, weigh in. We'll we'll leave it there. That's okay. We, we'll take this up another time. And uh, Aaron's always such a fantastic guest that I'm sure we'll have a lot to say. We were joined by Aaron Good, political scientist and host of the American Exception podcast on Patreon. His doctoral dissertation is going to be published by Skyhorse in June under the title "American Exception: Empire and the Deep State." You're listening to Political Misfits. We're going to take a short break and come right back. on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, talking now about some issues in U.S. agriculture, including a challenge to California's attempt to create more humane conditions for animals, and maybe a look at how mergers are affecting U.S. agriculture. We're joined now by Jim Goodman. He's board president of the National Family Farm Coalition. Jim, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about this California law that is going to the Supreme Court California, years ago, passed a law that established uh, larger space requirements for veal calves, breeding pigs, and egg-laying hens. I think it was back in 2018 that the law was passed, but it wasn't to be implemented until the beginning of this year to give producers time to adjust. The law applies to those agricultural products 
sold in California. And that is where uh, this issue that has come up today lies. Because the law doesn't only apply to pork, veal and eggs produced in the state, but coming from other states to be sold there, it is being challenged by two agricultural associations who say that no farms satisfy those conditions and that the costs of complying will fall on out-of-state farmers and then be passed on to consumers. And so the Supreme Court is going to hear their challenge to a state's attempt to make its agricultural industry more humane. And so I want to ask Jim, you know, I was happy to see that the law was enacted, and I wonder how worried we should be about uh, this challenge to it. Well, I think we should probably be really worried because, you know, the the courts have generally, as have legislation, has generally been in favor of large agricultural enterprises, large agribusiness or consolidation. And I would disagree with the thought that farmers can't do this because there are many farmers that can and have done so across the country, small farmers uh, that have their pigs outside in general and provide plenty of space for them. This industrial model that was developed by Don Tyson many years ago uh, industrialized the production of, of hogs just like he did with chickens. And while it did lower the price of meat in, in for the consumer, the big thing it did was increase profits for the agribusiness industry, you know, Tyson's being foremost. And, uh, you know, people would like to have pork, poultry, whatever, that is that are raised in more humane conditions. Uh, but yes, it will increase the cost because this industrial model was brought into place initially to reduce cost of production and put more of that money into the pocket of the corporation. It is really sad, though. Ultimately, you know, here you have a state saying, we as a state, we have decided through through democratic processes that we want to require some reforms, uh, you know, to our agricultural system. We've agreed on this. We've enacted it. And now it just sort of seems like if industry if industry says, nah, it's, it's too annoying, it's going to cost us too much. There's a possibility that the Supreme Court will just say, no, actually, you can't. You can't give veal calves more space, as a, even though as a state you have decided that's what you need. That is, you know, when you boil it down to... Uh, industry versus democratic process, it's pretty bleak. It is. And, and I'm, I'm sure that, you know, a lot of the arguments to overturn this bill will, will focus on interstate commerce because, like you said, it's just producers in California that are required to do this. But most hogs in the United States, be it in the Midwest and our industrial hog farms or in, in North Carolina, are not allowing this larger space for pigs, and they're going to cry foul because the, the huge majority of the industry produces pigs this way. And so if, if you know, I mean, if uh, the Supreme Court rules against California, that would seem to be a blow to efforts to reform agriculture at the state level. I don't know where, you know, where the people who who were motivated to craft that law would go. Would you I mean, I don't know. Do you do you try to sort of ring fence agriculture within states? That doesn't seem really possible, given that, you know, some states are better growing than than other states. Do you sort of take this to the national level Uh, that also would seem to have some obstacles in the way? What like what what would you think could be another avenue to go down if this one is blocked? Well, I think the ultimate way to get laws that people like passed are through the power of grass.
grassroots people movements. You know, they did a very similar thing in England about 20 years ago when they outlawed the raising of, of breeding pigs in confinement. And, you know, the English people were vastly in favor of that. But they didn't put laws into place to prevent imports, and so they started importing Danish pork, which was still produced under factory conditions and was cheaper. So it's great when people say, yes, we want better care taken of our animals, but they also have to be willing to pay the farmers to raise the animals in a way that falls in line with their wants. Now, again, we can't expect people to pay more for food than they can afford to pay, so any discussion of raising farm prices uh, to pay farmers what they deserve also has to take into account wages that people are paid so they can afford to buy the kind of food that they want that supports local farmers. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, a lot of times this does come down to a, a sort of economic question. You can build as much social will behind something as you want, but if you can't afford the product, uh, you are kind of stuck. Uh, it's interesting that t- today uh, the FTC and the Justice Department are hearing from farmers, uh, ranchers, grocers, and other groups on how mergers uh, have affected the food and agricultural industries because the Biden administration is planning to update merger guidelines. And so I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about the kind of consolidation uh, we have seen sort of steadily over the last decade in U.S. agriculture and, and what the results of it have been. Well, the USDA and the Department of Justice did, back in 2010, did a round of hearings around the country asking these same questions. And obviously not much came from that. Yeah. But uh, I think that consolidation is probably one of the bigger problems facing agriculture, aside from climate change and, and uh, many other things. Uh, you know, farmers just don't have the market access they used to because everything, the companies they sell to are controlled, as as we all know, in, in beef, poultry, whatever, by a few companies. And it's not just the things they sell that are controlled, it's the things they buy. They're con- you know, whether it's chemicals or fertilizer, any kind of input is controlled by a few multinational corporations. And, you know, your farmers are kind of caught on both ends that they have to pay what they're asked to pay for what they buy, and they're paid what they're told they're going to get for what they sell. And it's really hard to to make a living when you don't know how much your inputs are going to cost at any given time or how much you're going to be able to get for what you sell. And that volatility and fluctuation is, it's really hard to budget for things like that. I mean, if we were to see antitrust action taken uh, against the agriculture industry, do you think that would be, uh, you know, against some of these, the biggest conglomerates, would that be a step toward winding some of this back? Like, would would simply breaking up some of these huge consolidated corporations uh, alleviate any of these problems? Well, I would hope it would, and and you know Senator Booker has has had a, anti, a moratorium bill on agricultural mergers for a couple of years now. And I think unless we uh, break some of these companies up and you know go back to a system where there's there's more market access, more options, uh, farmers are going to continue to suffer as our consumers because everything they buy in the grocery store from the limited number of grocery stores, as you mentioned. Uh, they kind of set the price and decide what they're going to get paid. It's also surprising to me that, you know, I mean, we saw the limits of this hyper consolidation and hyper standardization at the height of the pandemic when, you know, you had to euthanize 
tens of thousands of uh, maybe it ended up being millions of animals because, you know, you you have to process the chicken at exactly the right size. Uh, you know, it, it would seem to me that we might have learned a lesson about some of the shortages we saw um, and and the limits of, of having things be so consolidated, so streamlined and so uniform. Well, yes, we should have learned that lesson because we saw exactly as you mentioned what happened. The, the supply chain failed. And now that, that things are kind of getting back to normal and processing facilities are open again, uh, everybody says, oh, well, uh, no, big, no big deal, no problem. Um, why would we assume that won't happen again? Yeah. In such a highly consolidated industry with such huge processing plants, if something goes wrong, the whole plant closes down. Yeah, I believe we've lost Jim. That was Jim Goodman. He's board president of the National Family Farm Coalition. You can go find more of the work that they're doing at uh, nffc.net. Sorry to lose Jim at the very end there. He's a great guest. We are going to come back uh, here on Political Misfits. We're live in D.C. and uh, you'll hear us again in just a minute. on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte, here with my co-host, John Kiriakou, talking now about what is probably a tense summit underway in Europe between the EU and China. We're also going to talk about the future of the dollar as a global currency and what the IMF has been warning about, and maybe get into how we can view Joe Biden's latest moves to reduce gas costs. Joining us for all of this is John Ross. He's an author and economist and a senior fellow of the Chongyang Institute at Renmin University in China. Thanks for joining us, John. Pleased to be here. Um, So let's uh, talk about the IMF warning that sanctions imposed on Russia by the United States could threaten the dominance of the dollar over global trade as smaller currency blocks emerge to avoid these sanctions. The IMF's first deputy managing director said the dollar would remain the global currency even in this landscape, but that fragmentation is certainly possible and that we are already seeing some of that fragmentation. Uh, so I think, we, you know, we, we have an example of this in India where the Russian foreign minister is leaving a visit to that country with the announcement that it is absolutely clear more and more transactions will be done using national currencies and bypassing the dollar and the euro. You had Russia and China working out similar mechanisms. Uh, And so if this is a trend that continues, what does this mean for dollar and for euro economies? Well, this is well one of the occasions which is not extremely frequent, which I agree with the IMF. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But but you have to take into account both things. There is it is true there is a tendency, an increased use of currencies other than the dollar. But the dollar's dominance and centrality is not going to be replaced in the short term. I would be extremely pleased to say that it could be replaced in the short term, but I'm afraid it wouldn't be true. And in serious matters, you have to act on what's reality, not what one would wish to have. So in this case, both parts of the IMF is correct. The, the dollar will remain dominant, but some other smaller groupings will emerge of current of cu- countries using other currencies. So what what happened? Like what is the effect of that? Right? Do, does it bolster these other currencies? Does it have any? If it remains sort of um, at the small scale, right? 
does it really have any impact either on the dollar or the euro or on those other currencies or does sort of the uh, the ratios, I guess, remain unchanged? Well, the, the basic problem for using national currencies is that you can't use them universally. That is, you can't do trade with all countries in them. And secondly, a number of these currencies are very unstable uh, for various reasons, inflation, sanctions, and other things. And you cannot, a country will not hold a large amount of currency of another country if this current currency is going to devalue. The actual currencies which are, well, the things which are stable are, one is gold. Russia has done a great deal to um, transfer its, its foreign exchange reserves from gold into, from dollars into gold. Exactly how much is not known, but it's thought to be about 20%. The RMB is a very stable currency. So that that's increased its use. The problem with the RMB is that China has capital control, so it's not so easy to to use. And the euro and the dollar are very strong. Now, for the individual countries, however, use of national... So that, that's why you can't replace the dollar nationally. For the individual countries, it can be extremely helpful. I'm sure that Russia will gain greatly uh, from the use of the ruble, for example. The, the agreement between India and and Russia, which appears to have been agreed at for the payment of oil and gas in rubles and rupees, that, that would certainly aid Russia quite considerably. I'm wondering also about the, the political ramifications, right? If if countries start, I don't know, I'm, I'm wondering, like, what is the, I guess, the vector from economic and political power, right? If, if the dollar becomes, you know, still dominant, but but not a requirement, not uh, not the only vehicle for for global trade, or one of the only ones. Uh, does it erode some of the U.S.'s sort of social and political power? Well, yes, it does do so, but it's going to take a very long period of time. Right. If you look, if you look at a time scale for replacing the dollar, uh, I will give you a time scale which is in decades, not not measured in years. That's to give you a view of that. Um, Politically, many countries would like to get rid of the dollar, but it's difficult to do because you've got to be able to hold something else. I mean, the the one which is the favourite would be gold, but there are various technical problems about having a gold-based currency. So that's why it's sort of it's nibbling away at the edges of the dollar's supremacy, but it's not going to be placed in the short term. And I want to stress, I would rather give you the opposite answer. Yeah. That's the truth of the matter. No, fair enough. I'm also curious about what kind of agreement you um, would expect to see take shape between Russia and Europe to pay for gas. Uh, John and I talked on the show yesterday about the possibility that Germany uh, would continue to pay for gas in euros, but pay them directly to Gazprom Bank, which has not been sanctioned, according to a a ruble exchange rate that they had agreed upon. Uh, There have been some other solutions floating around, uh, but I'm wondering what what you think is going to be the most likely. Yeah, I I think that what will happen is that it, it will be paid. Germany will pay in euros, but there will be some agreement whereby this is then transferred into rubles. What what Russia wants is the, the, the inflow of currencies had a very good effect of stabilizing the ruble. The ruble has made up almost all, or in fact by today, it may have made up all of the loss which was um, given from the war. And this is very important for the Russian population because, of course, the trade of um, 
uh, Russia is not going to go full to zero. And if you have a very devalued currency, this creates strong inflationary pressures, which the population doesn't like. You will still have some inflation. Uh, in Russia, certainly because of sanctions, but the fact that the ruble, cur- the ruble exchange rate has recovered will limit the extent of the inflation, and that will be very important from the point of the living standards of the population. But this is a very good, it's a sort of compromise between Germany and Russia, but it, Germany is not going to shift and it aids Russia, so that's the, te- the little technicalities doubtless will remain secret. But then- that's going to be the rough scheme. But as long as Russia converts the payments into rubles through this bank, it, it, it gains what it wanted to gain from the transaction, I, from, from doing this transaction in rubles, I guess? It gets 90% of what it would want. I mean, it would probably like formally for it to be paid in rubles, but it's not going to get that. So it gets 90% of the economic effect of what it wants, yes. Talk to us also about this EU-China summit that is underway. Uh, It it does not look, I'm unsurprised to say, that China is going to be persuaded to join the United States and European sanctions regimes against Russia. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what else is on the table here. Uh, Deutsche Welle report quotes an expert as describing this as a warning summit directed toward China. China has not recently enjoyed being warned by the United States. I don't know how much more they would, uh, you know, countenance that from Europe. And so I'm wondering, you know, what what you can tell us of of the tone of this summit and how fruitful it's going to be if if that's what the tone is. Europe, uh, you know, wagging its finger at China, warning it that it better toe the line. I'm afraid I think that that's the fantasy of the United States. The United States did try to warn China very soon after Biden came, and it got a very, very sharp reply. Um, I think uh, that, 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 you know, the the meeting was held between the Secretary of State and the Foreign Minister of China, right? I I doubt very much that that's the tone that Europe is going to take at all. The slight paradox about the situation is that economically, things are going really rather well at the moment between uh, Europe and China. Um, The European Union has just replaced ASEAN as uh, the largest trading area for China, and exports and imports are going really rather strongly. There is is a fly in the ointment by the fact that the Comprehensive Investment Treaty that was agreed hasn't been ratified by the European Parliament, which would make things better. But we could say, overall, economically, things were going um, rather well between the two something that the US, I'm sure, is not pleased with, Um, because particularly with Germany, the United States is putting huge pressure on Germany to completely change its policy, to have massive spending on military in Germany, which will damage the German economy. And it would doubtless like to loosen the uh, Germany's trade relations with China. So I think the the summit's going to be slightly contradictory because, on the, as I say, the economy is going well, but the political tensions created by the U.S. Yeah, I mean, then this has been sort of a theme, right? The economic ties are are incredibly important and sort of continuing, uh, continuing to develop. And so, you know, you have you have this sort of trend- trundling along uh, pretty cheerfully. And then you have this sort of, all this sort of political uh, tension, even with the U.S. and Chinese officials basically yelling at each other a, a year ago. Mm-hmm. You still do have, uh, you know, Europe threatening, threatening to uh, take action if China did decide to work with Russia to get around sanctions. And I'm wondering if, you know, there is anything concrete behind these warnings or threats, if there is anything that, that Europe 
would be willing to do to enact consequences on China if, you know, if China does something that they perceive as stepping over the line when it comes to helping Russia get around the the pain of some of these sanctions? Well, I think the problem that Europe's got on that is that um, what about 80 percent of the countries in the world are not going along with the sanctions? I mean, it's, it's, it's astonishing. I mean, if you take, for example, India, I don't know if you know, it's been reported yet, yet in the US, but um, a whole series of foreign ministers have been visiting India from uh, Britain, uh, China, all sorts of places. Uh, and of course, they've had meetings with the Indian foreign minister, but none of them have had a meeting with the prime minister, Narendra Modi, except for Lavrov. Um, so therefore, obviously, the fact that the 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 Indian Prime Minister only agrees to meet, or only arranges to meet, you know, the Russian Foreign Minister is sort of sticking the eye for the United States. What it what it says is, we're not going along with these sanctions at all, um, and other countries are not going to. So the problem is, for the European Union, it's going to have to, it's either going to have to select out China, to which I think China will give a very robust response, or it's going to have to carry out sanctions about against about 80% of the world's countries, mm-hmm. which is not very convenient for the EU. So I think that there's likely to be more talk than there is action. And I think that the United States will intervene, try to intervene into this, because I would, I, it's, it's gone very badly. I mean, also, uh, Biden, you know, was had to cancel his projected summit with the ASEAN countries there's 10 out of the 11 members refused to carry out sanctions against Russia. So I would say the attempt by the U.S. to spread the sanctions outside of its immediate allies, which does include the EU, of course, really going rather badly. Yeah, it is surprising how much this is you know, discussed in the United States as a, as a global this and a global that, when really it involves a, a fraction of, of the actual globe. Um, I also want to talk about just the the way that it seems to me, at least, that the United States and maybe uh, Europe also to a certain extent tries to hold China responsible for the behavior of its allies or, you know, its uh, its trading partners. Right. Or tries to pressure China to achieve ends with third countries. Right. The United States frequently tries to do this when it comes to North Korea, or at least we pretend we do with different countries in Southeast Asia. And now. With Russia, right? We're, we're sort of uh, threatening to put pressure on China in order to uh, have an impact in Russia. And China tends to hold the line saying it has its own independent foreign policy. It is charting its own course. It doesn't tell other countries what to do. And I'm wondering, you know, how how much of an influence China actually is behind the scenes, right? Is it is it playing more of a behind the scenes role? Is it engaging more with Russia than it than it lets on? Or uh, or is, you know, should we take it exactly at its word that there's no point in trying to pressure China because it's not going to pressure other countries? I think it's, it says more or less exactly what it does. The, you know, China's China's got a style, which is to be very doesn't engage in big shouting, which is different to some other people. I remember very vividly, for example, I had a discussion with um, Venezuela's charge d'affaires in, in China, and he said when China launched the first satellite for um, Venezuela, the Americans tried to stop China launching the satellite right up to the morning of the launch. China didn't make any denunciations, didn't make any statements, but the satellite went up. 
Um, that's a that's a different style to, for example, Chavez, who puts you know at the United Nations the famous thing about you know smelling the devil or whatever is exactly. Yes. <laughs> U.S. China's rather calm and and does basically exactly what it says it's going to do. That's its style. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at this sort of report about the the summit so far that it has been difficult and uh, that they simply have opposing views, which would also seem to be fine, right? Sometimes countries can't. It's, it is interesting to me that, you know, uh, you have one side finding it very difficult to have opposing views with another side, whereas China doesn't, you know, seem to really care whether uh, its views are shared by its trading partners. No, that's exactly China's position is. It, it, it's, it wants to get on with building prosperity for the Chinese people. It understands that foreign policy plays an important role in that. Therefore, it's not going to be kicked around by the United States, you know, to break off relations with Venezuela or Russia. It's not going to make big condemnations, but it's simply uh, not going to do it. And very big and very powerful, of course, particularly in the field of the economy. I mean, you know, if we if we make the balance sheet of the trade war which the Trump launched, it's quite clear that the U.S. lost the trade war. The, there was a small reduction in uh, China's exports to the United States, which were paid for by each American fa- family paying out several hundred dollars a year in extra prices. And China's exports have risen by more than 20%, not to the U.S., I mean, to the rest of the world. So it suffered a small hit in the United States, but it easily made up for that by its exports in the rest of the world. You know, it's a very... The, the the reason that the U.S. uses all this threatening language, et cetera, is if it came to a peaceful economic competition between China and the United States, the United States loses. Yeah, it also seems like pretty bad timing to be, you know, have a bunch of NATO member countries and NATO itself trying to get China, you know, on their side when just a year before you had NATO coming out for the first time explicitly uh, discuss, you know, discussing China as a threat and trying to justify why the the North Atlantic Treaty Organization should be, uh, you know, should turn its attention to China as a sort of a reason for its existence. I, it seems like maybe someone could have predicted this a little bit better. Well, I think it's another reason, which is there's a serious threat of a recession in the United States. I mean, I'm not I'm not going to say that there's definitely going to be one. Nevertheless, there's big downward pressure on the economy and there's downward pressure on the economies of Europe. If you take if you take the two years of, of the pandemic, for example, U.S. economy has grown by 2.1%. I mean, that's taking the two years together. China's economy has grown by 10.5%. So this period of time, China's economy has grown five times as fast as the U.S. And as you're heading into a slow slowdown in the U.S. economy and the European economies, it doesn't seem a very appropriate moment to have a or very sensible moment to try to have a fight, economic fight with a more um, rapidly growing economy. That seems what they, they want to do, but I don't think the result will be very good for the U.S. or EU. Well, then you think, why why pick this fight? You know, is it just sort of wrongheadedness? Is it just, sort of, you know, a, a bad political or economic analysis or sort of being able to uh, to you know, change direction of the train on the track? Because I, I, I agree with you. It seems it does seem like a silly fight to continue with. So I wonder why why we are continuing down this path. Because the United States is trying to maintain the impossible position with about 4% of the world's population. It should be able to tell everybody else in the world what to do. And, and the rest, the other 96% of the population of the world doesn't want to be told what to do. And the the economic resources 
of the US are now no longer able to dominate the world. It's only accounts for in, in, in proper prices about 16% of the world's economy, or put it another way, 84% of the world's economy is now outside of the US. The big danger is that the US still spends more militarily than the next nine countries in the world put together. The big danger in the situation is as it's losing in peaceful economic competition, the US decides to adopt military solutions. Actually, what's behind the things in the Ukraine. Well, because what really created the war in Ukraine was the US insistence on trying to bring the Ukraine into into NATO. So therefore, you've got a very danger that the US, because it's losing in peaceful economic competition, will decide to use military means. And that is already done, of course, against developing countries. Um, but um, it now seems to be in, in, insisted upon doing this towards Russia. And it, as by as it's in trying to nibble away and undermine the one China policy, which it knows is a red line for China. You've got an increasingly adventurous U.S. military policy, which is taking place, and this is very dangerous. Let's also talk about some of the efforts that uh, Joe Biden has undertaken to shore things up economically in the United States. Yesterday, Joe Biden announced the release of stock from the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve for the next six months, and today uh, he announced or is pushing for fines for domestic producers of oil who are sitting on unused wells. And it's kind of being framed as a crackdown on big corporations. And, you know, he points out in this White House press briefing or this uh, readout uh, that, you know, some of these corporations are just sort of squatting on public land. And so, yeah, fine, make them pay some fines for, for doing that and not using it. But it is also pretty remarkable that an administration that was supposed to invest so hugely in climate change uh, has really done such a large reversal, right? Uh, Pushing for, you know, releasing its oil reserves, pushing for other countries to release their oil reserves, and now pressuring domestic oil producers to drill. And so I wonder if this is going to have the economic impact that Biden wants, uh, or if we should see this as primarily political. It won't have any fundamental economic effect because it's not that's what's caused inflation is the nature of the stimulus packages in the U.S., which which were launched under Trump and under Biden, which didn't have any investment in them. They were basically based on consumption or not merely basically based on consumption. They were more than 90 percent based on consumption. Therefore, what you had was you have a big increase in demand, no increase in supply, and you get big inflation. What the point about the the, the gas thing on the on, on oil is the U.S. What the U.S. says about all climate change is complete hypocrisy. The only area in which the U.S. has been able to really maintain its position in industry is in oil and gas production, and its strategy is based on oil and gas production. And this, of course, is completely contradictory to its so-called green policies. Therefore, what's happened is the green policies have um, have disappeared. So that's it's a political shift, but it's not going to make any fundamental difference to the inflation in the United States. I also wanted to ask, since you, you mentioned the possibility of a recession, you know, I saw the headlines, uh, I think it was last week, about, uh, you know, uh, the first time the Treasury yield curve has been inverted since 2006. Uh, I saw headlines this week about consumer spending not rising as high as expected as last month. But, you know, we we also had another good jobs report. And so I'm wondering, other than that, you know, inverted Treasury yield curve, what 
what would some other uh, indicators of a coming recession be? Like, it, what, what would you be watching to see what is going to happen with the U.S. economy? Well, the measures that are taken by the Federal Reserve to try to control inflation, because the inflationary situation in the United States has become very severe, as you know, it's mm-hmm. inflation for 40 years. And this is going to create great political unpopularity, and it will also create negative economic trends. So the Federal Reserve is going to have to tighten its monetary policy. The question is, how much is it going to tighten, and what is this going to do to the overall economy? It's that is the big um, element that I'd be looking at, which is the U.S. monetary policies in real terms now. U.S. monetary policy is contractionary. That means the increase in the money money supply is actually lower than the rate of inflation. So therefore, actually, the money supply is contracting, and that's going to produce a a, a recessionary thing. I say I would not, I would not yet. I would think it premature to say there's definitely going to be a recession. What is the case is that the U.S. economy is going to slow down and the U.S. economy will not meet the type of optimistic projections that were made coming out of 2021. And it was said there was going to be this fantastically rapid recovery. It's not going to happen. I mean, the good news for Joe Biden is he can blame it all on the war in Ukraine. Uh, That was author and economist John Ross. John, always great to talk to you. Thanks for joining us. Very nice to be here. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Today, we're going to begin a new segment that we'd like to do every Friday on politics in America. We'll keep you updated on important political races around the country as we approach the 2022 midterm elections. And believe me, there's going to be a lot to talk about. We're joined here in the studio by Ray Valencia. She's a Sputnik News analyst and the producer of this show. Welcome, Ray. Hi, nice to be here. Uh, Ray, let's begin with the broad strokes. The Democrats will almost certainly lose control of the House of Representatives to the Republicans. The numbers just aren't there for the Democrats. Uh, Between redistricting and gerrymandering and a lack of enthusiasm about their base, uh, they just aren't going to be able to hold the House. The latest polls show the Republicans looking to pick up between 20 and 25 seats now. Just a few months ago, we were talking about the Republicans picking up six to 10 seats. The Senate is a different story, though. This is one of those odd years when Republicans have to defend far more seats than the Democrats do. And the latest Senate polls show the Democrats picking up between one and three Senate seats. So let's talk about those races. And I wanted to begin with Pennsylvania and the seat currently held by Senator Pat Toomey. On the Democratic side, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, the former mayor of Braddock, is running against Representative Connor Lamb. He's the congressman from southwestern Pennsylvania who you might... um, recall, uh, won a special election just after Donald Trump became president. I worked on that campaign. Oh, did you really? Mm -hmm. Okay, I want to hear about that, too. Uh, There are major ideological differences between Connor Lamb and John Fetterman. Major differences. Fetterman's a a progressive Democrat. Lamb is a conservative Democrat. Fetterman is raising far more money than Lamb is, and it shows in the polls. 
On the Republican side, the easier question is, is who's not running for Senate? Um, they have a dozen people running so far. Five are considered to be serious candidates. One of those is Dr. Oz, the TV quack who pushes phony uh, diets. He moved to Pennsylvania from New Jersey just to run for this Senate seat. He's not from Pennsylvania. Real, a month or two before he moved. Yeah, and, yeah he just and got registered to Pennsylvania. and then announced his candidacy. He doesn't uh, he doesn't know a lot of the local issues uh, in interviews. He can't answer some of the questions about, you know, specific issues in different parts of the state, uh, you know, garbage dumps or or. Uh, state highways. He just doesn't know. No, he just can't answer. He has the support of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. He's a head by a small plurality in the latest polls, and he's far behind Fetterman in head to head matchups. So give me your thoughts about this race and especially about the, the Republican side of this race. Pennsylvania, as you know, it's your home state. It's Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. And then there's like Alabama, Alabama in the, the middle, yep. right? So it's going to be a turnout game in terms of winning this election. There's far more Republicans registered than Democrats. It's kind of red state. It's kind of moving. It's changing. But it's 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 going to be tough, you know, um, to win. It's going to be really getting the turnout. Connor Lamb is very much an establishment Democrat. He's probably going to get a lot of the support from the major party. Betterman is more progressive. He's running on Medicare for all and a lot of other progressive issues. In fact, Cigna Health Insurance is contributing a large amount of money to Super PAC to Connor Lamb mm-hmm. in order to bolster his position in the primary. They want Connor Lamb. They don't want Betterman, in my opinion. In fact, there um, was there. If I could interrupt you for one second, there was a a meeting. Uh, a, a party meeting of the Democratic Party leadership just a couple of weeks ago where the theme was, how do we save Connor Lamb mm. in this race? Because Fetterman's always been an outsider. He's never been terribly popular with the party. And uh, Connor Lamb is a creation of the party. Mm-hmm. And so here they see, you know, their Senate seat sort of being taken away from them. Well, Fetterman is a great story. You know, he says he grew up middle class. His father wasn't like an insurance agent. He said he was kind of asleep through most of his young adulthood. And then he becomes Mayor of Braddock, a really small town. It's like a few thousand people. A dying town. A dying town, a dying steel mill town, right? And he runs and he wins by one vote, a provisional vote. So when we talk about voting, it is important. Campaigns matter. Yep. Elections matter. Yes, they do. And indeed. so he talks a lot about that on the campaign trail, because right now the Democrats have a problem and that's the disaffected voter. A lot of people are opting out. They feel like there is nobody that's really representing them and their interest. We have a two party system that's kind of locking things down. So Fetterman, I think, is opening up a lot of that. He's really connects well with young people, connects well with people of color. He's He's a progressive. I think it's going to be hard in Pennsylvania because, you know, it's Pennsylvania. You get in the middle. But I think if they really have a strong ground game in the cities, they could it could work. Yeah, I agree. It's all about turnout. Yeah. Also, I think, you know, being a mayor of a small town, that gives you small town appeal too. maybe in neighboring towns. Maybe he'll outperform in some of these more red 
areas. You know, um, he doesn't have the challenge of gerrymandering and all that. You know, it's much more democratic uh, voting for Senate. So I hope that he can definitely uh get more support. I think he will. I mean, a lot of small donor dollars are coming in for him. A lot of people are coming from out of state. That's already happening. They're building a ground game. So, yeah, yeah. and he says he has a cool factor. People think he's cool. He does things that are a little unorthodox. You know, he put his loft on YouTube to show everybody that, no, I, I believe in Pennsylvania as a steel, you know, as its history. His house faces the last remaining steel mill that's operating. It's one of the oldest steel mills. Yeah, it was founded by Andrew Carnegie. Andrew, yeah. So I think he has a lot of a lot of appeal. I don't think on the Republican side, Dr. Oz, you know, the whole Oprah Winfrey, and then he he went on and did all this kind of wacky stuff. And David McCormick, I think, is gonna actually David McCormick, the hedge fund. He's uh, a hedge fund guy. His resume looks very much like Mitt Romney's, but he's a little more mean than Mitt Romney. Um, He debuted his candidacy with an ad that ran on Super Bowl Sunday. Only if you were in Pittsburgh would you be able to see it. But it was basically just music playing with beautiful pictures of Pennsylvania saying, you know, go Brandon, go. And it's all about, and then underneath there's this texting like high inflation, surge in homicides. So the whole ad is, a, you know, a running against Biden. It's not even addressing anything in the state. It's just an anti-Biden campaign. I don't know if that's going to be a winnable campaign. I mean, certainly it's going to affect a lot of the races, uh, having a low favorability with your president on the ticket. But I think that but some of the president's these, not on the ticket. Well, he's not on the ticket. But I mean, you know, the president having such low favorability rate is going to affect all the down ticket races, the Senate, the, you know, because that's the Republicans game. They're going to try to associate every Democrat with Biden's performance right now. That's going to be the big link. So the challenge for the Democrats is really going to be able to separate themselves. Right. Saying, yeah, this is. You know, I'm for Pennsylvania and this and really be able to speak to Pennsylvania voters. And I don't know if Oz is going to be able to pull that off as well as Fetterman. I'm not sure Oz is going to be able to pull it off among Republicans. Among Republicans at all. Yeah. Yeah. And McCormick. You know, let me interrupt you for one second. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Another thing about Oz that that bears raising is he's a Turkish citizen. Mm. He served in the Turkish Army Special Forces. And he said that he would only give up his Turkish citizenship if he wins the Senate seat. And to me, that's that's a big middle finger. That's not going to the go people over of Pennsylvania. Well with voters. I don't think it will. No, 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 not with. No, no, that's not going to work. No. Plus, just. Yeah. Being a Turk. And the amount enough. of the money that McCormick is dumping on you ad buys. You can't be racist on here, John. You can't get away with it. <laughs> <laughs> and the amount they're dumping in ad buys, McCormick's campaign and Oz are yeah. really going at it in terms oh, yeah. of money. That's, on That's where that that's where the Republican race is. It's between the two. Of the, you've got like state senators running mm-hmm. and the former state insurance commissioner and and a state representative and a, a former member of Congress. And nobody's paying any attention to them. This race is between McCormick and Oz. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Or Ozgun 
which yeah, is and his I think, actual and name. And I think McCormick's probably going to overwhelm <laughs> Oz at some point, and then it's going to be Fetterman, and it's going to be a very... You know, it's going to be a, uh, all about the economy, inflation. Yeah. And McCormick's going to be able to talk about, I'm a hedge fund manager. I know money. I know finance. You know, trust me, I'll be able to solve the problems. with Which which might, you know, go somewhere in Pennsylvania. It will, especially with the energy complex. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I don't know where they're citing yet on all the fracking. I know fracking's very popular. Well, interestingly, they haven't really raised fracking yet. And it's funny, too, because fracking is such an important part of the Pennsylvania economy. Oh, absolutely. But I it know hasn't really become an issue. That have, you know, they're drilling in their backyard. My best friend. My best friend from high school has a well in his backyard. And how much is he making on this? Oh, five grand a year. Yeah, not very much. No. But I guess some make. That's what everybody's Some making. make pretty good money on these things. So there's a there's an interest in it. You know, people don't want to let it go yet yeah. in Pennsylvania, the fracking. Let's turn to Georgia. When you were walking into the studio, I, I mentioned some uh, breaking news uh, from CNN saying that Herschel Walker, who is almost certainly going to be the Republican nominee for the Senate seat, had to make some changes to his campaign website. He has been saying in in speeches for years that he graduated as valedictorian of his high school class and in the top one percent when he graduated from the University of Georgia. Now, he famously won the Heisman Trophy when he was at Georgia and then went straight into the NFL. Um, It turns out that his um, high school never named a, a valedictorian. They only started doing that in 1997. He graduated in 1982. So that was a lie. He had to change that on his campaign website. But it turned out that not only was he not in the top 1% of his graduating class at the University of Georgia, he didn't graduate from the University of Georgia. He didn't have enough credits to graduate. And rather than stay an extra semester and finish his degree, he went into the NFL. And so they had to take that off of his website, too. The Democratic senator, Raphael Warnock, is running for a full six-year term after being elected two years ago in, in a special election. He has impressed with strong fundraising and is on the air with positive spots about his background as a pastor, um, as a civil rights activist, and touting the legislation that he's co-sponsored. You know, we say all the time here on the show that on Capitol Hill, there are show horses and there are workhorses. He's a workhorse. He really is. He's a workhorse. Um, he's the one who wrote the law that would, or the bill rather, that would temporarily suspend the federal gas tax. Um, and people actually like the work that he's done. His, his poll numbers are strong on the work that he's done. But Georgia is a Republican state and we're entering a Republican or an election in a Republican year. And so uh, this thing is going to be close. The Democrats say that Warnock is the most vulnerable Democratic senator. Yes, he is. And the the way they're running the campaign with Herschel, I think it's just really it's kind of shrewd because, you know, Herschel's African-American and so is Warnock. Mm -hmm. And Herschel runs on this, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus. Yeah. And Herschel also has to answer questions about um, his mental illness. Okay, he, so that's he has, another thing to talk about. He has said uh, in interviews that he mm-hmm. suffers from dissociative personality disorder. He's been arrested multiple times for beating the snot out of his wife mm-hmm. and says, well, it's not my fault because I have 
uh, dissociative personality disorder. Um, he's been arrested for drunk driving. And um, I honestly believe that the that the voters of Georgia are owed an explanation. Like, do you still suffer from dissociative personality disorder? Are you going to wail on your wife uh, if you have a bad day? I think they need an answer to the Republican Party because I can't imagine the Republicans running this candidate. Well, he's being polled at 72 percent. He is getting polled at 72 percent, which is just amazing because he's a opposition researcher's dream. Yeah. I mean, all the stuff they're going to be running on him. So when I was down in Georgia, it was the night before election for the runoff. And the, and the Republicans dropped an ad on Raphael Warnock that he had an altercation with his wife and became abusive. And there was an argument that he had with his wife. They ended up out in their yard. The police showed up and determined, oh, probably nothing really happened. And it kind of died until the night before Election Day. Because you can't really respond to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, what can you say? Mm-hmm. It's already out there. But now with Herschel running, I mean... This stuff's going to be out all through the campaign. Oh, yeah. Because this type of disorder, I looked it up. I'm not a psychologist, but it's one of the worst. Yeah, I mean, this, it's this worse than borderline personality disorder. Right. It was previously referred to, to as multiple personality disorder. Correct. They've just changed the name in the they last few years. they just changed the name. Years. It's different than schizophrenia. Schizophrenics hear voices. This is coming out of his head. And he's admitted to having what they call angry alters that he can't control. Oh, my God. So you get an, you know what, you're on the Senate floor and you get an angry alter telling you what? You're going to grab the 80-year-old guy next to you and start wailing on him. I just can't imagine. (laughs) Depends on who the guy is. (laughs) But the thing is, has this stellar athletic career, right? Yeah. And people An amazing connect athletic with that. career. And I think a lot of men are going to connect with that. And this whole, like, voting apparatus that, you know, Stacey Abrams has built, that ah, Raphael Warnock has I'm built. I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you said that because the Democrats are saying that because Stacey Abrams is running for governor of Georgia, which actually I'd like to talk about next week, that she is so exciting to the Democrats' base that. People, especially young people and black women, will turn out to vote for her, not even necessarily for Warnock, but for her. And because he's on the ballot, her coattails might help him win. That's a good, I mean, that's a way to think about it. I'm just concerned that, you know, black men, sports fans, people that connect with the name recognition. That's exactly what the Republicans are hoping for. And the whole Jesus factor, you know, that's something, too. He's going to draw social conservatives. um, So it's going to be a battleground. Yeah, that's that's going to be a tough race for the Democrats. It's going to be a tough. They're all tough, John. Well, I think let's talk about Wisconsin. (laughs) This this is going to be another tough one Um, as the the only Republican running for re-election in a state that Biden won in 2020. Senator Ron Johnson is the most vulnerable Republican incumbent, not just because Biden carried Wisconsin, but also because when he first ran for the Senate, Johnson promised that he would not run again in 2022. 
Right. That was like a major campaign thing he was yeah. saying, right? And then because professional politicians, they go mm-hmm. to Washington, they forget to leave. And they I was need like, to go back uh, home yeah, to their I think careers and pick up where they left off. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's a poll that Marquette University uh, conducted a couple of weeks ago, and they said that 45% of voters have an unfavorable view of Ron Johnson. And after 12 years in the Senate, only 33% have a favorable view of him. Um, Mostly this is because he has moved farther and farther and farther to the right as he has gone through his two terms. Not only has he been one of the strongest supporters of Donald Trump in the Senate, but he's also come out in favor of a lot of these QAnon conspiracy theories. So it's not like the debate is about, you know, Obamacare, right, or Medicare for all. The debate is about um, Hillary Clinton drinking the blood of children, uh, you know, in satanic uh, rituals and running a cabal of pedophiles. Yeah, and he's been a senator for a while. and he Twelve uh, years. And if the Republicans get the Senate, it's going to be a lot of hearings about you know, Hunter Biden, and it's going to be a lot of stuff about, you know, it's just going to be a mess. So among Democrats in Wisconsin, uh, it's it's one of those states where everybody's running. So Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes. He seems uh, to be in the lead right now. Seems to be in the lead, but only with 23%. Yeah, not much. Yeah. And, and which goes to show you how many people are running when you're leading the pack. At 23%. Now, when's the primary there again? I think it's a little later, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's, it's a later primary. It's been pushed back, actually. Isn't so there's some problems with the, something with, uh, there was something in the news about their... It's, it's in August, it's in now August, that I'm thinking yeah. about it. But it got it. Yeah. delayed for some reason. Yeah. I can't remember. Yeah. It got delayed because of redistricting. That's right. There was some so, question about the mapping. There are a couple of multimillionaires running for the Democrats, too, Uh an executive with the Milwaukee Bucks basketball team, Alex Lassery, uh-huh. is running. There's another rich businessman running. The state treasurer, Sarah Godlewski, is running. Uh, everybody's running. And the Republicans say they're actually comfortable with this race because Ron Johnson has been underestimated before. Well, this happens That's before, true. right? Like he comes from behind and surprises everyone. Right. And I haven't been able to unearth what exactly that dynamic is about, but he, you know, Feingold ran against him again and failed and, and he, you know, was I, looking ran good. Into, I ran into Russ Feingold one time. Russ Feingold didn't like me um, because he didn't <laughs> trust me. He told John Kerry, I can't believe you'd hire that CIA guy. Right. <laughs> and he used to sit next to Kerry in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearing room. And so I was sitting, you know, directly behind Kerry, which really was directly behind Feingold. Feingold had an attitude problem. Anyway, um, I ran into him one day. I was walking uh, to a restaurant on Capitol Hill and he was walking away from the restaurant. And I said, good afternoon, Senator. And he kind of harumphed like he always did. But he was surrounded by like a dozen or so very Mm -hmm. young people. And I ran into one of his staffers later and I said, hey, uh, I saw your boss uh, walking with a bunch of um, kids. Did you guys hire a lot of interns? And she said, oh, no, Um, there are new staff members. And I said, you guys have a budget to hire 
12 new staff members. And she says, well, everybody knows Kerry's going to move on to be secretary of state. So Russ is going to be chairman of the committee. And I said, you might want to win re-election first. And sure enough, the voters of Wisconsin threw him out. And then he ran again six years later to try to make good. And Johnson beat him again. So Johnson has been underestimated over the years. He's mean. You know, he, he doesn't keep his campaign promises. He's a, a, a far right-wing extremist. And when people go into the voting booth, they're like, ah, you know what? I like him. He's actually not such a bad guy anyway. And they vote for him. So something to watch. Well, we don't have time to talk about the other seven of the 10 we won't chip away states at these most likely to flip. But yeah, we we'll talk about these again. In weeks as the primaries approach and that's we'll right. break down each candidate. There's a lot to talk about. And we're going to talk about governor's races. And we're going to talk about some of the big races. This might sound yeah, funny George to some people. Yeah, going to be a great. But there, there are some state races that are sort of precursors to big, to big things. So we're going to need to talk about the Texas Railroad Commissioner race. Don't laugh at me. That's actually a serious thing. Sure. We're going to need to talk about the North Dakota Insurance Commissioner's okay, race. Okay, okay. Also a big deal. And there are a lot of really important people who are running for state attorneys general. Well, that's so we'll a talk path, about that isn't too. it? You were explaining how attorney general is a path. It is. It's to a path. elected office. Absolutely right. So these lower these lower state races, that's how Republicans really... That was their game, and they won that game pretty well. Mm-hmm. They, they ran for everything. It was commissioner of this or school board. I mean, they just went for it. Yep. We're going to talk about all those races. Well, we were joined here in the studio by Ray Valencia. She is a Sputnik News analyst and the producer of this show. Um, should we take a break or should we go right I mean, into we it? We don't really couple, have to. Yeah, no, I've got some headlines here that we can uh, slide in. We have two interesting... Well, your headlines are going to be more important than mine, so you should start. Oh, right. No, you have news of the weird. I have news I of the weird. I just wanted to say, as John pointed out, the House has approved a bill that would legalize marijuana. And so, I mean... Very big deal. Yeah, this would be great. This would Very be big deal. This is the first time it's ever happened. At a federal level would solve mm-hmm. so many headaches for... Uh, for businesses and states, right? It would solve so many headaches for people who have been trying to legitimately make make money on this. It could pave the way for a more robust, uh, uh, I don't know what you call it, but re- reforms of uh, procedures for getting, you know, for getting people out of jail for committing something right. that is no longer a crime anymore. That's right. And for trying to find some, pay- so it would be a very big deal. I mean, I was going to say hard to see it not passing the Senate, but then again, uh, the Democrats very explicitly did not run on this. Right. And the Biden administration, we didn't talk about this, but there was a a spate of headlines. Uh, One of one of the people who had packed everything up and and moved to Washington to work in the Biden administration and then was sacked before she even set foot in the White House because she had been honest about smoking marijuana. Yeah. So it it is it is possible that this won't go anywhere else, but I hope it does. The fascinating things to me about this vote is that it could only have taken place with the support of uh, of Nancy Pelosi. And so that in and of itself is is half the battle. Yeah. If if Chuck Schumer can force a vote, you know, I, I honestly don't know where Joe Manchin's going to come down on marijuana Man, legalization. Gotta, I have to say, I feel like that would be less popular than any of his other votes. I mean, yeah, yeah everybody, it's a good way to get some favor. It's a good way to get some uh, yeah. younger voters to, you know, get some goodwill I'm among younger voters. So, it. yeah. The House also passed legislation yesterday that would cap 
monthly insulin costs. Yes, at $35. At $35. Yeah, which would be a, a huge deal in, the, in this it, the industrialized, incredibly wealthy country where people uh, die because they can't afford their insulin. So yeah, seriously. Yeah, two things that, that we would like to see move forward. All right, John, tell me some new, some weird news. Well, yeah, there's kind of a, st- I've got a couple of stories about dogs. Don't right? tell me any stories about dogs dying. I will no, throw no, no, my headphones no, no. off and walk you, out of the You're going to like the first story. Okay. So, When Steve Nichols and John Wynn, who are a couple, they live in Indian Trail, North Carolina. When they saw a TV news story about a dog whose owners had abandoned him. Oh, yes. I know the story. Because they thought the the dog was gay. Right. 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 They knew they had to do something, they said. The couple, they've been a couple for 33 years. They told the Charlotte Observer that they drove to Albemarle on March 23rd to adopt the dog whom they named Oscar after the Irish poet Oscar Wilde. Oscar's previous owners had surrendered him because they caught him humping another male dog. Yes. Which it turns out is normal pack behavior. It's almost hard to believe the story is real because it's so stupid. (laughs) So stupid. Well, Nichols says, this was one of the stupidest things I've ever heard. That's just normal pack behavior, unquote. Nichols noted that the dog had not been neutered and was suffering from heartworm, the poor thing, which led him to believe that the owner apparently didn't do anything to care for the dog in the first place. So Oscar's getting the care that he needs. He's going to join the couple's other dog, Harry, and they're all going to live happily ever Harry after. and Oscar, two great names for dogs, I, I agree. have to say. They're great I names agree. for any, any entity, any living being. Yep. All right, what else you got? This one comes from Corsham, Wiltshire, England. It says, around Corsham, Wiltshire, England, people, sheep, even a former police German shepherd are being terrorized by two aggressive canines, according to Metro News. Quote, there were two unpleasant chihuahuas who attacked the German shepherd. So the size of the dog is no reflection on its aggressiveness. That's That's according to counselor Ruth Hopkinson. (laughs) She said these chihuahuas were not leashed and the owner thought, well, they're only little, they're only friendly, but then you have to be really careful, unquote. One resident described the chihuahuas as bloody Mexican hooligans Mm -hmm. and Hopkinson... (gasps) Delayed reaction on that one. Lady, you took it. You went too far. There's a great story from about a decade ago of a mountain lion that got into, I think it got into a garage in Northern California. And the three chihuahuas had the mountain lion cornered in the garage. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it doesn't matter. They're, they're terrifying little things. I they mean, are, I wonder, it, I actually, chihuahuas are my favorite of the small dogs. I, I like them. chihuahuas. I think they're supposed to my be small. My housemates have one. They weren't bred into... This weird, no. diminutive, horrible state. No, and that's you know what? what? They that's... don't realize that they're small. And they got lots of personality and they live forever. Yeah, I they mean, do. They live forever. Like? Yeah. Well, uh, what, what's the name of the famous actor I'm blanking on now? Who's, he dedicated his Oscar to his beloved dog who oh. just passed away, Loki. Oh. It's, a, it's a guy who was in, oh, he's incredibly famous. He was in The Wrestler. Very, uh, Mickey Rourke. Mickey Rourke. Yep, Mickey Rourke. Oh, that's very sweet. Well, they've actually had to issue a warning. Um, they said that, that. Is it Chihuahua watch out? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I actually wouldn't have thought of that. But it's lambing season, right? And it says, if in a lambing field, please keep to the paths and your dog on a leash. When the lambs are spooked, the you and the lamb can become separated. And because they're not very bright creatures, <laughs> they can't find each other oh, again. No. And it's leading to lamb deaths. Oh, no. Yes. The dogs may just be playing, but that's not how the sheep see it. So put your chihuahua on a leash. And yeah, put your chihuahua on a leash anyway. The vicious little thing. Have you ever been to Long Beach? 
uh, New Jersey. Nope. Lovely, lovely seaside town, oceanside town. Lovely. Been there twice. Volunteers every year at Long Beach uh, pick up trash on the beach. So they picked up a record amount of trash this year with plastic items dominating the hall. Uh, the bizarre castoffs that they found, and this is according to the Associated Press this morning, they found bottles of Viagra that had been washed up on the beach, uh, a set of braces, a glow-in-the-dark condom, a Turkish Airlines hygiene kit, uh, and all kinds of crazy stuff. Over 10,000 volunteers showed up this year for the beach cleanup. They picked up over half a million items. The, the cleanup happens in the spring and then again in the fall mm. after the tourist season's over. It says some of the things they found this year were just head-scratching. A giant hunk of human hair, for Why? example. Why? <laughs> a full set of dentures. A thong. A used Narcan kit. How do you mm. like that? Several bags of marijuana. A Great. bullet casing. And somebody's artificial eyeball. That's that is a great day when you're looking for shells and instead you you pick up an artificial eyeball. You know, if you I'm sure you've been to the British Museum, but if you haven't, one of my yes. favorite the British Museum, great museum. I mean terrible. Just That's a, where they put the Parthenon marbles after they yeah, stole them. Yeah, it's just full of stolen artifacts. Yeah. But one of the oddest is uh is in its Egyptian wing, which is full of stolen Egyptian stuff. Uh yes. but you're walking around marveling at how old everything is, and one of the exhibits is just a bunch of hair from a mummy. And it's just a big pile of hair, and you're going <laughs> That could be fake. Like that could just be a bunch of plastic hair oh from a mannequin. That's pretty funny. I think that's it. I think we're out of time, John. We are. If out you've of got time. more weird news for me, you can give it to me on Monday. But uh, yep. we're going to leave it here. Thanks to our production team here and all of our guests this week. And on behalf of Ray Valencia, John Kiriakou, and myself, Michelle Witte, thank you to you for listening. We will talk to you on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> 